0: Hello, welcome to the podcast. When you think of the Stasi, East Germany's infamous secret police, I'd take a guess that the first thing that pops into your head is the movie The Lives of Others, or the TV show Deutschland 83. Well, this episode of the show is going to change that. The Guardian's Berlin bureau chief, Philip Altman, has uncovered the true story of the Stasi's poetry club, a bizarre creative writing group that set out to win the Cold War with verse. It's the subject of his new book, The Stasi Poetry Circle. He joined me a few weeks back to tell me more. Philip. I have been telling people this week that I'm doing a podcast about the Stasi's secret poetry writing club, and everyone has found the idea both grotesque and slightly hilarious, because there's something profoundly oxymoronic and weird about a secret police force that has its own creative writing club, isn't there?
1: It is. I mean, that's uh, what originally got me going on this whole subject. I mean, it seems... As you say, it seems like something out of a Monty Python sketch or it sounds like a sequel to The Lives of Others or something. You know, the Stasi, a secret police that was famous for controlling freedom of speech and and poetry, which has always been the genre that allows people to express their innermost thoughts and desires. What attracted them to each other? How did the Stasi end up thinking that this is something they needed to do, that this is something they needed to spend resources on, and something they needed to run actually quite professionally? That was, for me, the starting point of the book.
0: So what was the Stasi Poetry Circle, and how did you discover it? You were already running your own poetry club at the time, of a more (laughs) traditional kind, uh, in London, weren't you, when you came across this?
1: Yeah, it was was, uh, something very haphazard. It was a sort of point in my life where I was, I mean, I had a job, I had a career. I wasn't i wasn't uh, in a completely existential crisis, but things were happening in my life that weren't going that well. And I, I sort of suddenly felt this urge to do something good, some charity work that I wanted to do on the side while sort of doing my journalism career at The Guardian. And uh, I volunteered for, for a couple of months at a sort of care home for the elderly in, in King's Cross, where they sort of said, oh, you know, come around uh, once a week uh, for an hour over lunch and just, you know, entertain the people who, who come here. You know, they just appreciate company. And I realized I didn't really have that much to offer uh, <laughs> apart from an English degree. And uh, I thought, OK, well, let's just, you know, read poems. Uh, so it was something that I sort of, I was... Interested in at the time in a way, it was, I was enjoying the dynamic of this of this group. I was interested in sort of what people got out of poetry in a way uh, that it could have a sort of pastoral care function almost. You know, it could evoke memories. Anyway, at that around that time, I then uh, I, I left. I should, at the end of that, I left. I left London to to go to Berlin for the Guardian to where I head up the Guardian's uh, Berlin bureau, and. I'd come across the story of this Stasi poetry circle or the the working circle of writing Czechists, to give it its proper name, a couple of years beforehand. But somehow it came back into my mind, and I realized you could find, you could actually order up a reprint of one of the anthologies that this circle had produced, which is called Wir über uns, Uh, eine anthologie der Kreiseiarbeitsgemeinschaft Schreibende Czechisten. Uh, It's We about Us. Uh, an anthology of the writing circle of writing Czechists. So I, re- I ordered this up, uh, this little booklet, and um, it just seemed to be a, a, a really curious story that I wanted to find out more about. And um, so I had the names of some of the people who were in the Stasi um, from this booklet, and I then spent sort of uh, more than five years tracking them down. Um, uh, I went into the Stasi records Archive, which uh, is you know historically is something that's you know very unique about Germany and the Stasi, that they've opened this archive up, and uh, not just the people who were spied on by the Stasi, but also media and historians can go in and look at these archives. So you need to get a, assigned a researcher who then helps you with the task. And it t- took a long time, but I, I managed to uncover quite a lot of a lot more poems over the years. I found. By various uh, routes, found people who had been spied on by people in this circle, and just to sort of amassed quite a lot of stories. Uh, that uh, and in the end, what was in my head originally a sort of short article became a book. To go back to your question, why, how did the Stasi come to have a poetry circle? Now, The records that I found don't answer that very clearly, actually. And to an extent, I'm speculating with, uh, I think, uh, quite a high degree of certainty what what function that circle has. There's a sort of naive answer or there's a um, a quite banal answer. And that is that East Germany cared quite a lot about literature. It was certainly a state where the, uh, where the state or whether the ruling socialist unity party felt it was in their remit to uh, shape people 's reading habits. it issued all sorts of decrees over the um, the years that the that socialist East Germany existed that they wanted to to bring up the the percentage of people who read serious high quality uh, literature and they wanted it to be higher than than in the west It had um, programs like um, you know every factory had uh, with with a certain amount of um, workers had to, uh, had to have a library with a certain amount of books. I had a, a vision that was rooted in Marxist philosophy that it wanted its citizens to be people who both worked with their hands and with their, their brains. And one thing that I. Sort of discovered in um and something i didn 't know about even though i'm i'm german I'm, I'm I was born in in West Germany, but something i had I had no idea about really um about something i' discovered through my research was just how how many poets ended up sort of having quite important political uh, functions or political roles in uh, in East Germany and who sort of drove this this quite utopian slightly sometimes insanely utopian idea that poetry needed to almost be as important as politics in, in East Germany. There was one poet, a formerly expressionist poet called uh, uh, Johannes Becher, who ended up being culture minister of East Germany, who who had this idea that in East Germany, poetry would have a, what you call a Großmachtstellung, uh, the, the, the standing of a sovereign power. It needed to be equal to politics. One of the things that Becher's sort of uh, vision resulted in was a program that was started in 1963 after he died, which was called the Bitterfelder Weg or the Bitterfeld Path. It's named after the, the town where they had a, had a summit to come up with this program. But essentially it was the idea that writers would be parachuted into factories where they would run writing circles. So uh, the idea is that they would work in these, in these factories, so they would be in touch with the working classes, but also the workers would learn how to write verse. So that's the sort of um, the naive interpretation or the answer to why did the Stasi feel it had to have a poetry writing workshop. It's because every other branch of industry did the same.
0: Becker believed that the sonnet wasn't a form of poetry ideally suited to express romantic love, but actually was ideally suited to express Marx's idea of dialectical materialism. Can you tell us a bit more about that? This is
1: uh, something that just really fascinated me. I mean, I, he ended up writing a number of uh, sc- uh, essays on the sonnet, and he had a, had this idea that the sonnet mirrored the structure of dialectics, essentially. So that that a, a good sonnet, as the way he saw it, came in three parts: in a thesis, antithesis, and a synthesis. And he he believed that this was the supreme form of poetry that essentially should be written, and that should you know it could be that could be one example of how art or poetry in particular could guide the people of East Germany onto a path towards socialism and communism eventually, or could uh, infuse them with this algorithm of insight um, that uh, was the sort of underlying philosophy of of the Soviet bloc. I mean, the interesting thing is, (laughs) does that mean anything to anyone who was writing poetry? In the Stasi poetry circle, it did. I, I mean, there was at least one poem in this original anthology that I found, which which is called Dialectics, and which sort of tries to do that. It's not a sonnet, actually. Uh, it doesn't meet the line requirements, but it does try to sort of think dialectically about what it means to be a, a soldier. Uh, it sort of starts with him saying, OK, I take my machine gun and I clean it and I get it ready to to shoot. And then I think, so, so the first bit was the, the thesis. And then the antithesis he says, and then I wonder why if we're if we're fighting for peace uh, as we claim to do in East Germany, then why do we have an army? Why don't we build houses instead? So that's the critical thought that suddenly enters them. And I guess in Hegelian or Marxist dialectics, there would there would then be a process of synthesis which gets these two. Conflicting statements into some sort of uh, conclusion. And the interesting thing is for, for this soldier, it, I think he can't quite work it out. He just, it just ends in a sort of an order. He says, and then I take aim and I shoot. So I think in practice, even then, this very, uh, utopian idea of the, of the sonnet uh, didn't mean, uh, that much to people who are actually writing poetry, even within the Stasi. And that's something I then uh, started to, Discover perhaps that, as well as this very utopian founding narrative to East Germany about about um, this being the country of readers, as opposed to the bestseller country in the in the West, there was a an attitude towards art and culture which was influenced by some other writers who had also given political posts. Um, one of them was Friedrich Wolf, who was a poet and playwright who later became um, East Germany's ambassador to Poland. He was the father of perhaps the most uh, famous East German spymaster, Markus Wolf, a man without a face. But uh, Wolf Sr., he wrote a very famous poem in the the late 1920s, which was called Kunst ist Waffe, Art is a Weapon. And that is essentially an idea that he pursued is that if you want to be an artist in east germany you need to further the cause the political cause of the uh, of this country and this idea that 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 poetry was a weapon is that sounds really absurd i mean that was uh, that, that we are back to monty python then the idea that somehow this poetry circle could come up with a super weapon in the cold war is pretty absurd again but at the same time that was an idea that seemed to sort of ring around people's heads so this motto "Art is a weapon" is you know it, it props up again and again and again until the 1980s and I think to an extent um, that was the idea that that was in the minds of the Stasi when basically in in the early 1980s 1982, they started to professionalize this poetry circle and that 's when things sort of got really interesting to, to me because uh, they recruited a poet quite a famous isn't the right word, but a very successful poet, which isn't the same as famous. Uh, this guy, uh, he was called Uwe Berger, and he um, held all sorts of really uh, quite important posts. There were all sorts of writers' committees in East Germany, and he was sat in most of them and was in the executive committee of, uh, of, of others. And he was published by Alfbar, which was a big um, publisher. He had written he was sort of a very uh, productive churned out an anthology of uh, a collection of poems every year. But he wasn't in the party, which is very unusual because at the time, a lot of, I mean, uh, you know, I think at the time, almost every sixth person in East Germany was a member of the Socialist Unity Party. But they approached him and asked him to come into this compound once a month for two hours between 4pm and 6pm to the House of Culture that they had there on the first floor, in a room adorned with pictures of Lenin and Erich Honecker, the East German state leader, and taught them how to write proper verse. He taught them about sort of you know, literary techniques, about rhyme schemes, um, about scansion, about all these technical aspects that they previously hadn't taken very seriously. I mean, there was a, um, an officer who'd run this circle beforehand who was – I mean he just wants, i think this guy just wanted to he just enjoyed writing rhyming essentially and 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 they just sort of wrote quite silly um poems beforehand a lot of them actually love love poems and sometimes hilariously at odds with what you'd expect to be the the sort of political <laughs> ideas of a sa soldier there's one which i mean there's one uh, poem in which a soldier imagines writing, I love you into the evening sky with his searchlight. There's another one. where <laughs> oh, that's one, amazing. Uh, where's one where, um, who, who, uh, the, uh, he says, uh, he basically, he's, he's in love and he, uh, says, I wish you could promote me to being a lance corporal, your lance corporal in love. Uh, and then he says, I, I wish, uh, my, you, you, my love for you is is mine, all mine, and I hope it never gets um, nationalized or collectivized. <laughs> so, I mean, the uh, the political message was slightly at odds with what you might expect. But in 1982, so when this guy comes in, Uwe Berger, uh, that 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 changes uh, somehow. I think um, he he tries to um, instill in them the idea that. Poetry is a weapon to an extent. It can heighten their morale, and it can it can firm up their uh, political belief uh, and and their hatred of the. I mean, that's one thing they they spelt out in in what this circle should It should heighten the hatred of the of the class enemy, and to to intensify their love for Soviet Russia to an extent. So there are lots of the Stasi men in the group. mostly men. Ended up writing sort of. I mean, if they are love poems, they are love poems to to Russia or to, to sort of poems expressing gratitude for uh, um, the Red Army's defeat of um, of the Nazis. So, I mean, that's slightly different to the, the banal or the naive interpretation of why this poetry circle existed. But you could say maybe it's not that bad because it still seems a bit absurd.
0: Hello, it's Vas here. One of our all time favourite guests at How To Academy is back. Yuval Noah Harari's next book tells the story of how information networks have made and unmade our world. Nexus, a brief history of information networks from the Stone Age to AI, is out in September and available to pre order now. Hey there. There is an even more sinister layer of the poetry circle. And this is the idea that the poets were being spied on by Berger, who was using poetry as a way of looking into their souls to see if they were good Stasi officers. And this is a a very sinister aspect, perhaps the most sinister aspect of the circle. Will you speak to us a bit... About Berger's career as an informant for the Stasi, and how he was trying to use poetry against the people who were writing it.
1: Yeah, as I said, you can go into the um, Stasi Records Agency; they assign you a researcher, and in they, they you can you can submit a request to to look at a. Um, so they they distinguish informally between victims' files and and perpetrator files. And Uwe Berger uh, had a perpetrator file. And when I ordered that app, it was enormous. It was, I mean, it filled up my writing desk, and uh, I had a tower of files in front of me. And it turned out that he had been an incredibly productive uh, informant on the East German literary scene, all the while, I guess, keeping. People in the belief that he was apolitical because he wasn't in the party. Um, He'd been, he had a sort of backstory which made that plausible in that he was a part of the, you know, what in Germany uh, people call the Flakhelfer generation. So the the very young teenagers who were drafted into, into into shooting down planes in the last months of the, of the war. Uh, And that generation, you know, another famous one was the novelist Günter Grass. Uh, that former foreign minister, uh, Genscher, I think was, was also one. Um, a lot of them sort of, uh, were traumatized by that experience because they're very young. And I think a lot of them became quite passionate Democrats as a result. And from, uh, the way Berger sort of positioned in, himself in public that. People seem to believe that maybe that was the same case with him, that he didn't want to join, ever want to join anything resembling a military organization again, even that was a political party. So that was a sort of alibi. And it was, I guess, an alibi because he was spying on, on everyone. He, was, he wrote reports for a period of just over 20 years. He wrote um, reports on colleagues, friends. He asked to borrow other writers' manuscripts. And then wrote reports on on their political content. He visited other writers or friends and told the Stasi what TV programs they were watching, what jokes they were making, and he could just um you know, sort of put down and destroy his rivals with a stroke of a pen and accuse them of being bad socialists, uh, of being fat. Some of them he, he just you know just dismissed as being fascists. I mean that was became a sort of just anyone who. Wrote surrealist poetry was a proto-fascist and, um, uh, he had a very attentive audience in the Stasi who wasn't schooled in this stuff. I mean, the, um, they were very attentive to, to anything that, uh, that Uwe Berger uh, wrote to them. Now, Uwe Berger, I mean, he, he, he's dead. He died shortly before I started researching this, uh, this subject, but he wrote a memoir, uh, after the fall of the war. And he does acknowledge that he worked as an informant. He doesn't. Sort of, he makes it sound like a very, some very minor. Um, some, and he said, you know, I didn't proactively approach anyone. I just occasionally sort of. He makes it sort of sound like opinion polling. And he certainly. Uh, he then says, um, uh, you know, in the in the eighties, I just had enough. You know, I'm just. I was a. I was a man. I was interested in beauty. I could not uh, burden myself with these. Tiresome uh, chores anymore, uh, and and these negative aspects of life. So he he asks the Stasi for a meeting, and he basically says, "I want to quit being uh, working as an informant." And they say, "Okay, in return, can you run this Stasi poetry circle for us?" That's how he makes it sound in his memoirs. He makes it sound as if that was the end of his career as a spy. It turns out that was not the case. He, and that was, I mean, to me, that was the. The bit where this story of the Stasi poetry circle became a sort of like a parable or something, because uh, there was a beautiful reversal. As the Stasi spies started to learn how to write poetry, they ended up writing things that were not, and they didn't want to write weapons in verse form. They wanted to write poetry. Is always ambiguous. It's always in itself. Ask questions uh, that, um, or it, it teases you. It, it, it gets at sort of, uh, ambiguities. It, it's about holding two ideas into, in your head at the same, at the same time. So at that point, when they start producing poems that are more and more ambiguous, Uwe Berger's instincts kick in again and he starts writing, filing reports again to, uh, to the superiors at the Stasi about the people in this circle. Uh, now, supposedly, uh, the Stasi was not meant to spy on its own offices, but that's clearly then, to me, it's pretty evident that was a function that uh, that's something that made this poetry circle attractive to the Stasi, that it was a way to to monitor its own staff and particularly the quiet ones. I mean, that's something, and that's something that's evident. You can prove it is that that's how the Stasi thought about poetry circles in general, because it had not just in branches of industry, but also in youth clubs and so on. It set up or encouraged the setting up of, of poetry workshops. Uh, and it in many of them, the people who ran them were informants. So that's something that I found out from talking to, to you know, and people who weren't in the stars to, to dissident writers, that they they all had this experience of, of their local poetry workshop, that which was a sort of honey track for creative minds, for people who thought laterally, who, uh, who, I mean, you know, it's worth saying that a lot of them were socialists, but they didn't quite believe in the socialism of the state and they were sort of you know this, um, there was something dangerous about these people because the Star- socialist Unity party was a party that claimed to have the ultimate authority on the the meaning of of what um marx what marx said what you know um, or, or lenin's writing they they sort of wanted to hold an authority so, um, Uh, because they didn't have an authority from elections, which were rigged. (laughs) Uh, So um, it was a sort of literary authority they had. So anyone who was uh, skilled at reading against the grain was therefore highly dangerous.
0: To finish, will you tell us the story of a woman who was everything Becker pretended to be, a, a genuine rebel and a genuine poetic talent?
1: Yeah, this is a a woman that, I mean, just as a short preamble, I mean, I I thought it was very important in a way when writing a book about the Stasi and a book about the Stasi, which is a lot of it uh, was about what's happening inside the Stasi, which I did find interesting. And I think it's something that sometimes gets, has has often been overlooked in a way, that the Stasi became this incredibly scary, uh, I mean, scary they were, but it's incredibly... um, Efficient organization, which I think the closer you look at it, it wasn't always efficient, and it's sometimes been sort of built up this, as this merciless bogeyman when, uh, when actually there are some interesting cracks. But nonetheless, I thought it was it would be problematic to to only look at the Stasi itself. But I wanted to, I was interested in also looking at the people who were the victims of uh, of the Stasi and. Uh, I came across a a woman uh, called uh, Annegret Golin, who was a a sort of, I mean, yeah, she was a a genuine, uh, she was someone who who would have fitted this idea of what the Stasi, what East Germany was originally about. And that she was just someone who wrote instinctively. She just wrote poetry all the time. And she she wanted to become a librarian or work in in a bookshop. But I think because she wrote she just, you know, she was like, I think if she, you know, she'd be a sort of a rapper now or someone uh, if she was alive, which uh, she is alive, but if she was young today, she's just sort of writing what was in her head all the time. And often that was provocative. Why should the Stasi care? Why should the states care about what a, a teenage girl writes in her diary? I mean, and yet it did. I mean, this is the, the Stasi uh, got hold of a book of I mean, handwritten poems that um, this woman, Gret Goline, had uh, written while she was at school and something she'd shared, I think in some, some cases, copied out poems to her classmates. And one of these classmates' father was the Stasi informant, handed on this booklet to the Stasi and it was used against her after she was arrested as, as evidence for, for her being subversive of the state. And she had to... She was questioned by Stasi officers in prison about the meaning of these poems. It's just the ultimate uh, for me. That was the ultimate expression of of this utter paranoia about something that, you know, the state should just not have cared about, and and yet it did. Uh, and I think her story is uh, she was the for me. She's the sort of even though she's not, you know, she's not she's thematically directed linked to the Stasi poetry circle as a sort of counterpoint. She wasn't didn't directly come across any of the individuals who were in that group, but to me she's sort of the, uh, the, the tragic hero of, of, of the story because she, um, she wrote poetry uh, in a very uncompromising way and, and refused to allow her art to be instrumentalized by, by politics, which is what happened um, with, with East Germany in the end, in spite of its initial hopes.
0: Philip, I will never think about creative writing classes the same way again. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast.
1: Thank you very much.
0: This episode of the podcast starred Philip Alterman and was produced and presented by me, Vas Christodoulou. The editor was John Doughty, and the series is made by me and Dana Outcult. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a review on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time...